There are many ways people listen to Vision, including DAB Plus Digital Radio. If you're in Greater Sydney, Melbourne or Brisbane and have a digital radio receiver in your car or home, you'll find Vision Christian Radio on the station list. If you're visiting one of these cities and hiring a car, there's a good chance it will have a DAB receiver and you'll be able to enjoy vision with exceptional sound quality while you drive around. If you don't already own a DAB receiver, you'll find many models, including clock radios at electronic retailers for under $100. To find out more about vision on digital radio and whether you're within the broadcast footprint, see vision.org.au slash DAB. However, and wherever you listen to Vision, you can be sure that the announcers, programs and music will help you look to God daily. Vision Christian Radio is all about connecting faith to life. From inspiring stories about the struggles we all face. To helping you understand the issues going on in the world. To clear and understandable Bible teaching. All peppered with great Christian music. The latest news. And even a few laughs along the way. You're about to experience just a small part of what we do. For the full experience, tune into a Vision Christian Radio FM or AM station near you. Listen online at visionradio.org.au or download our free app. And talking through some issues to do with Islam and Christianity and on an issue that's largely been ignored by the mainstream media. Uh, Ignored by the mainstream media, I suspect, because it's very difficult for people to get their mind around uh, comparative issues when it comes to the world religions. But you have to uh, be able to argue and you have to be able to acknowledge that uh, these religious issues are very foundational to understanding what's going on in the world today. Well, we're going to talk today about what is known as the Marrakesh Declaration. And while the mainstream media may have been ignoring it, it's a great privilege today to be able to discuss some things here because this particular declaration has been acclaimed by some to be a new dawn uh, as promising an era of tolerance and pluralistic harmony in the Muslim-majority regions where religious minorities have suffered so much for so long. So, you know, we take a fair bit of time at different uh, days uh, talking through issues of just how our brothers and sisters in Christ are being persecuted. Uh, Religious minorities, they're sometimes called, but predominantly Christians who are persecuted at the hands of uh, Islamic uh, people who are of that religious faith. And so, so much of what we're seeing in the headlines of the news every night has to do with a whole lot of religious issues. So today, getting our head around some of those. Uh, The issue we're going to talk about today, the Marrakesh Declaration, about 300 dignitaries gathered in the Moroccan city of Marrakesh. They gathered under the auspices of King Mohammed VI of Morocco and they came up with a declaration about how they would treat religious minorities in predominantly Muslim-majority communities. Well, just a privilege to be able to welcome a special guest through this next hour and as we open the talkback lines, uh, your opportunity to participate in our conversation. Our guest through this next hour is Dr. Peter Riddell. He is Vice Principal at Melbourne School of Theology. He's also one of the founders of the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths at Melbourne School of Theology and uh, you've known we've had a number of guests from the Melbourne School of Theology and just outstanding commentary when it comes to these issues. But a special welcome to you, Dr. Peter Riddell. 
Thank you, Neil. It's good to be with you. Peter, when I say that this uh, document, uh, this issue, has been largely ignored by mainstream media, uh, is it because they just don't have the personnel, the capacity to be able to talk through issues like this or to understand issues like this in typical uh, mainstream journalism? Well, that's often the case, Neil. Um, some of the uh, some of the mainstream press uh, depend on um, freelancers to come in and give them um, comment on specialist um, issues such as this. Uh, and if they don't have ready access to them, then they remain silent. Also, this is a particularly uh, difficult issue. I think uh, this particular declaration that's been issued it, it has a number of. Um, kind of hidden dimensions to it um, and so one really needs to be able to engage with not only the uh, the tip of the iceberg which is the declaration but what lies under the waterline which uh, which is a whole set of issues um, so it requires some sort of expertise and specialization to do so because on the face of it it's being warmly welcomed by a lot of people but when you say there is a tip of an iceberg there are many dimensions to this things you've got to get your head around uh, that uh, that sort of raises a little bit of an alarm that says hang on a second uh, maybe not everything here uh, looks as good as perhaps some are making it sound well, that's right. That's right. Um, on face value, the, the call of the declaration um, for um, a greater awareness and openness and tolerance for religious minorities living under Islamic uh, majority rule is obviously to be welcomed. We would all, all wish for that to be the case. And therefore, any such calls, yeah, we welcome them. Um, but we need to read between the lines to see uh, what points of reference the declaration is calling on as it, as it sort of shapes its own policies. Well, we wanted to frame our conversation today uh, around the idea that Muslims ask some hard questions of themselves. Now, when we talk about this Marrakesh Declaration, uh, I guess it has to be applauded that uh, all of those Muslim leaders, 300 dignitaries in fact, uh, gathered there in Marrakesh and they were talking through these issues of just how uh, these minorities are treated in nations where there is predominant uh, Muslim domination. Uh, so when we talk about uh, the questions that those uh, Muslims need to ask of themselves, how does that fit with the warm reception of the idea of, of, of talking about tolerance? Yes, well um, it's it's probably worth just touching touching base on a little bit of the background here. Um, the um, as we're all aware from the from the news media, there has been uh, we've been going through one of the worst periods of uh, persecution of, of religious minorities, uh, especially Christians, um, in the Islamic majority world for throughout history. Actually, uh, in recent times, we've seen um, the the uh, the awful activities carried out by the Islamic State against religious minorities, against Christians and and others. Um, just 12 months ago, for example, hundreds of Christians were, were, were kidnapped by the Islamic State. They were ransomed off. Several were executed uh, on camera. Uh, and that's just one small window. We, we hear um, lots about Iraq and Syria and the suffering of Christians, but we also look to places like Nigeria, where um, there is an anti-Christian jihad taking place, which has killed thousands. Um, there have been attacks on some Christians in, in further East, um, in Pakistan, for example. Um, so the, the Christian experience in recent times has been especially un, unpleasant and, and has been one of suffering under, under Islam. And so um, when 
Muslim scholars and leaders have come together to think about this. It's in, a, in part it's a response to pressure on them to be seen to be actually doing something. Um, Western governments have been much more outspoken about uh, persecution of Christians in recent years than they ever have. So uh, the response of Muslims in meeting in this way in Marrakesh has been uh, in part due to international pressure and a, a recognition that they need to be doing something and saying something about persecution of religious minorities in Islamic majority locations. When I think of Islamic people uh, and uh, we're talking about peoples uh, around the world uh, you could you could sort of uh, designate different types of people who are part of Islam you've got the extremists that we're seeing there in uh, IS and those activities in northern Iraq and in Syria uh, IS the establishment of the Islamic state then you've got these sort of moderate Muslims and then you've got a a very large number of nominal Muslims uh, you've got the extreme the moderate and the nominal what sort of people would have met uh, in this uh, idea of uh, coming up with the Marrakesh Declaration, what type of Muslim uh, Islamic believers uh, would have been part of that, Peter? Yes, that's, that's an important question. Well, uh, being under the patronage of King Mohammed VI of Morocco, that says something because since he assumed the throne in 1999, he's tried to initiate a, a whole set of reforms. So he is a reforming leader of one country that's mostly Muslim. And therefore, the, 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 the other 250-odd who came, they were coming out of... Um, not certainly not the extremist end of things. They were coming out of the scholarly community, out of the more moderate political um, uh, Islamic uh, community. So the people you had there um, represent a significant body of Muslims in the world. Um, they are leaders who speak for a significant number of Muslims in the world, but they certainly, their, their decisions and their voices would not be accepted by the extremist elements. Now, four years in the planning for this gathering to come up with this declaration, and as I understand it, as many as 50 non-Muslim observers were invited to be there or were able to be there, and Catholics, mainstream Protestants, evangelicals, I'm not sure they weren't participating, but as you say, observers, people who are looking on to the process, did you glean anything from from those observers? Yes, um the, the the essential call of this meeting was for better interreligious relations, um, and it involved a recognition that some very bad things have happened in, under Islamic rule in certain areas. Um, now, the, the, the declaration has pointed to a particular text, which we should talk about a little later, perhaps. But the response of the um, Christians who were present, and, the, and there were some Jewish people present as well, as well as re representatives of other religious communities, um, that was very, a very warm response, largely because um, uh, at base they consider a call for greater Islamic tolerance to religious minorities to be something that's desirable. So in the written responses that you can find online from, for example, the chair of the Parliament of World Religions or from some evangelical spokespeople or from some Catholic spokespeople, they've largely said, this is welcome. There have been bad things happen in the past under Islamic rule. Therefore, any attempt to improve the situation for the future is to be welcomed and supported. So that's generally been the response. My view is that that response is good, 
but it has avoided some of the hard questions that need to be asked. Okay, let's touch on hard questions for a moment, Uh, but even this may take a little bit of setting up because uh, you mentioned uh, an ancient document that's also important in this uh, whole scenario. You've got a a modern document called the Marrakesh Declaration, and you've got an ancient document that goes back to the days of Muhammad, back to the 7th century, and it's called the Charter of Medina. Uh, give us some little uh, clarity on uh, on how those two documents might relate and the importance of that first document called the Charter of Medina. Yes. Well, of course, the, the supporters of the conference would say that those two documents relate very closely to each other. I question that. Um, the Marrakesh document uh, claims to be a document of the 21st century reflecting pluralist values, ref- allowing for religious liberty, and it claims that by basing itself on this 7th century document, the Charter of Medina, then it is strengthened by that charter. Um, the present-day document, the Marrakesh Declaration, says that the ancient Charter of Medina was equally pluralist, was tolerant of religious minorities, made space space for equality among the different religious groups. That's the claim about that charter in today's Marrakesh Declaration. I have significant questions to ask about that link that they're drawing. Peter, I want to invite listeners to participate in our conversation today and recognising that some of these things are difficult to get your head around and uh, you might need to listen just a little more carefully. But if you do have a question, uh, you're welcome to call us. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Now, it might be a general question about... Uh, Islam and Christianity, Uh, the differences, uh, some level of comparison. You might have a question that's been burning in your mind for a while and you'd like to just uh, pop that question today. If you have a question that's a deeper question, something to do with this Marrakesh Declaration and what it is uh, when religions of the world uh, try to actually uh, manoeuvre themselves in a certain way, perhaps away from all of the violence of the past, as as may be the case with this Marrakesh Declaration. You might have a question. Well, our talkback line is open on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Dr. Peter Riddell is our guest. He's vice principal at the Melbourne School of Theology and was also founding director of the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Talking through some important issues this hour, ones you can contribute to on 1-800-316-316. Our special guest is Dr. Peter Riddell, Vice Principal at Melbourne School of Theology. We are talking about the Muslims asking hard questions of themselves Uh, with what eventuated out of uh, the January gathering uh, that produced what is called the the, uh, uh, Marrakesh Declaration. And uh, so difficult getting our head around some of these things, uh, Peter uh, Riddell, but uh, we need to just follow through and make a connection because you mentioned an ancient document from the past. And uh, that ancient document uh, from the called the Charter of Medina and the comparison and the connection to this uh, this uh, Marrakesh Declaration. What do we need to understand about that to make sense of this current declaration? Yes. 
Well, perhaps I'd, I'd like to give a, an example here, um, Neil. Um, if, if we took, for example, the Constitution of Australia and said that uh, the Constitution of Australia is based on the Magna Carta that was signed a thousand years ago, and we tried to decide whether the Constitution of Australia was a good document, we'd also want to look back at that Magna Carta a thousand years ago. That's what I'm suggesting we need to do here. Today's Marrakesh Declaration says that it is based on the Charter of Medina, which is something from 1400 years ago. So we actually need to look closely at the Charter of Medina to see if it fits with modern ideas of pluralism and religious freedom and so forth. And I believe that it doesn't. Okay, and so when you've got a glowing report on big breakthroughs, uh, on the face of it, uh, those things might be important that there is talk about it, but when it comes down to the substance of what is presented in a new declaration, uh, what how, how it compares to the 7th century document, the Charter of Medina, is very important. Now, just a highlight for us, though, Peter, because uh, Islam works somewhat uh, differently to what most of us think about uh, modern politics or even our Christianity, uh, they, there is a great, great uh, value that's placed on that early document that goes back to Muhammad. Mm, that's right, indeed. And um, the Charter of Medina was one of several steps which really shaped Islamic early Islamic attitudes to other religions, and it was based on a few principles. The first was that under Islam... Other religions, well, Christianity and Judaism, could c continue to practice providing they recognize the supremacy of Islam. That's the first thing. So ongoing, Christians could remain Christians, but they had to recognize Islam as supreme. Secondly, they had to pay a special tax that Muslims didn't have to pay. It was a particular tax that they had to pay. So there was a special impost on them that Muslims didn't have to pay. In other words, if you were going to be a religious minority, you had to recognize Islam as supreme and you had to sort of pay uh, additional taxes as a result. Now, that's quite different to today's religious pluralistic approach to, to, to modern society. Okay, taking calls 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to contribute to our conversation today, let's take a call from Craig in Ormo in Queensland. Hello, Craig. Welcome along. G'day, guys. And, uh, Doctor, thank you for uh, unpacking such a sensitive topic and being brave enough to do so live on air. Well, that's our, that's our, our pleasure, and uh, it's good to be able to talk through these sorts of things. Uh, Craig, did you have a particular uh, point or a question to ask? more of a question, uh, an inquiry, but um, it's, it's such a, a, a multi-layered uh, subject you guys are currently talking about, um, and there is a, a lot of, I see a lot of deception in um, this particular document um, to try and maybe make us feel warm and fuzzy towards the Islamic uh, standpoint, but... You know, I, I, I've always seen them using deception, uh, even when witnessing to people uh, firsthand. I've experienced that, knowing only a very fraction of the Quran. I do have a question about the Quran, um, Doctor. If you may, you, you may be aware of this particular passage. I, I don't, I don't know it verbatim, but I've heard it referred to that um, it says in there somewhere that uh, the Muslim is not to forget or reject the writings of old. 
and I'm wondering if the writings of old are in reference to the Torah, the Jewish Bible at the time. I don't think the Christian Bible was in existence when the Quran was created. Uh, well, uh, of course, the Christian Bible was in existence, but uh, but Craig, let's uh, let's put that uh, question to Peter Riddell. Uh, Peter, your thoughts? Uh, yes, thank you for the question, Craig. Yeah, the Quran uh, the Quran developed over many years, and there certainly are statements in the Quran at particular verses that make space for the writings of old, and they even refer to the um, Torah or the Jewish texts and also the Injil or the Christian New Testament. Um, however, what Muslims understand that to be is um, earlier versions of the text. So Muslims regard our present version of the Jewish Bible and the Christian New Testament as having been corrupted. So most Muslims, when they read that Quranic verse, which says, don't forget the writings of old, they won't think of today's Bible, but they'll think of some imaginary past Bible that used to exist, which of course... We don't, we don't accept. Craig from Ormo, thanks so much for your input today. Just to follow through, uh, just another note that came out of Craig's question and his comments was this idea of deception. Uh, is there, uh, in your opinion at all, Peter, uh, something deceptive about a declaration or is it a well-intentioned uh, document that, that tries to set out some way of actually uh, helping to be more compassionate towards those minorities? Well, um, I think it's, this is where I think it's essential to go beneath the waterline because if the, if the Marrakesh Declaration is simply accepted at face value, then it will have the effect of misleading people. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's intended, but it will have that effect. And so my response is that Christians and others need to go back to those people who wrote the Marrakesh Declaration and say, hang on, let's look at this more closely. Let's look at the foundation of the Marrakesh Declaration that you're drawing on, namely the Charter of Medina. Most of the responses have not said that. They haven't said that so far. And that, that's a question that needs to be asked. Okay, now, as I understand it, the Declaration's only about a 1,000 words, or, or it's actually 750 words, the Marrakesh Declaration, and people can find that online. Uh, is it going to be meaningful to, uh, to ordinary Christian believers to actually have a look and see what that Declaration says? Uh, and, of course, when we talk about uh, the things that you need to know more deeply about that, we're talking about motives, we're talking about uh, those things that are a part of Islamic faith that look back to those original documents, the Charter of Medina in this case. But is it, uh, is it a useful thing for people to actually look up that Marrakesh Declaration, Peter, and read for themselves? I think it's useful for them to do so in conjunction with looking at some of the responses. And I have a response online myself. There are a number of responses online to the Marrakesh uh, Declaration. So if you look at the Lapido Media website, where I have a response, if you look at uh, the recent uh, issue of Eternity uh, magazine uh, from February, um, there's a response there that refers to Dr. Bernie Powers' perspectives. Um, so, yes, readers should look at the uh, declaration, but look at some of the responses as well. And I guess you can also look at the thousand-word-long charter of Medina and find out what was being said back in the 7th century. Yes, indeed. And um, that, is, that is readily available online as well. So readers could, could make their own comparisons. What, what becomes very clear 
when you look at the two documents is the first one, the, the, I mean, the most recent one, the Marrakesh Declaration, talks the language of the 21st century, language of religious tolerance and openness and equality. The older document, the Charter of Medina, talks very clearly about Islam being supreme, about the ultimate authority being Muhammad and the Quran. That's very clear. Now, those two are incompatible. You can't, this is where I don't accept the claim that the Marrakesh Declaration can just simply copy from the Charter of Medina because they are quite different documents in their tone and in their substance. Okay, it's, it is a difficult one to get our head around. Uh, but as you say, uh, the Marrakesh Declaration has a lot of good information that sort of says freedom of movement, property ownership, mutual solidarity and defence, as well as principles of justice and equality before the law. But the deception or the way that you have to look at interpreting that comes back to this earlier document, this earlier charter, which still sets out this idea that uh, it's it's all very well uh, to be in a min- in a minority group. Uh, you know, you can have some freedoms, but as long as you know that uh, you're under the thumb of your rulers. Uh, who are Islam. Is that is that more a way of just thinking about how you get the context right? Yes, it is. And look, when we look at the history of Christians and Jews and other religious minorities living under Islamic rule down the centuries, Neil, um, what we find is that those minorities had periods of continuous discrimination and some periods of great persecution because the Charter of Medina and subsequent legislation, subsequent Islamic law, enshrined Islamic supremacy and established religious minorities as second-class citizens. So all the problems that we hear reported about mistreatment of religious minorities under Islam, they, they can be traced back to ancient documents. So if a modern Muslim document wants to draw on the ancient documents without criticising them, then there's a problem. What you're saying, Peter, is uh, is we're all in trouble in the sense of the rise of Islam because Islam can't change because of its reflection on those 7th century documents. Um, yes, um, and until such time as these scholars who met in Marrakesh are willing to say the problem lies in our ancient texts, until that time happens, then the problem won't be solved. I believe that Muslim scholars today need to go back and say, well, let's look at our ancient texts, let's identify where the problems are, and let's eradicate them. Let's be really critical about them. And they'd have to begin with the Charter of Medina. But if you put yourself in the shoes of a Muslim scholar who might speak out and say those ancient texts are not relevant today, uh, they'd be putting their own lives at risk. Is that the case? Well, um, some have done so. Uh, admittedly, they tend to be Muslim scholars who are living in the West, um, but it's, they, they may well be if, if, they're living, um, if they're living in areas where extremist groups are, are quite strong. Certainly, it would be very difficult, for example, for a liberal, liberally-minded Muslim scholar living in Iraq to, or Syria to, um, to exist without threat. We are going to continue our conversation. We're going to break for the news and uh, we'll be continuing our conversation straight after the news. Our special guest is Dr. Peter Riddell. You might like to contribute to our conversation. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might have a question. You might have a comment on the topic we're talking about today, Muslims asking some hard questions of themselves. Uh, We're back after the news here on 2020. Where the rubber hits the road, of course, is where 
persecution of Christian believers around the world, which is something which is very, very close and dear to the hearts of Christian believers who are concerned about just how tough it is for Christians in other parts of the world. Dr. Peter Riddell is our guest. He's Vice Principal at the Melbourne School of Theology, also Founding Director of the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths. Uh, Peter Riddell, let's just bring this right down to the nitty-gritty where the rubber hits the road. The persecution of Christian believers, which we hear in the headlines so regularly, uh, when we hear those stories of persecution, how important is it to draw attention to the ancient texts to see that that's why it's all happening? Um, Neil, I believe it's it's vitally important to do so, and I do recognise that it's difficult because the ancient texts require time to read them, time to think about them. Um, but really, the ancient texts provide the ingredients for what we see in, in the Islamic world in terms of discrimination and persecution against religious minorities, especially Christians. Um, and there are a number of texts. We've talked about the Charter of Medina. That was um, supposedly, assuming that it's, uh, it's an accurate document, um, and there are different versions of it, but they, they essentially say the, the same thing. That was an agreement reached between Muhammad and the tribes of the city of Medina when he arrived there in 622. It established Islam as supreme and um, religious minorities were required to recognize the supremacy of Islam. Now, following that, there were various other texts that led on to the formulation of Islamic law and Islamic law really is where the major problem lies that translates to problems for religious minorities because Islamic law insists on the supremacy of Islam. It doesn't allow religious minorities to share their faith, for example. This is why Christians are not allowed to share their faith in Islamic lands. So when we hear story after story of Christians being arrested in Muslim countries for having evangelized or um, Christians being actively persecuted by groups such as the Islamic State, the reason that that is happening is because of ingredients back in those ancient texts. Okay, now the interesting uh, difference that is within Islam, of course, is these two predominant groups, the Shias and the Sunnis. Uh, do they both agree that those ancient texts uh, are uh, a part of their, their background? Uh, do they both adhere to those? Yes, they do. They do. In essence, the Shias and the Sunnis, their differences don't relate so much to the ancient texts. Um, so under Shiite Islam or under Sunni, Sunni Islam, religious minorities cannot share their faith and try and evangelize a Muslim, for example. So that's a, that's a common issue. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we're talking here generally about Islam. And, and of course, with Muslims, even though the Islamic world is incredibly diverse, um, it is still bound together by a glue, and that glue is the, the ancient texts I'm referring to, the Quran, the Hadith, uh, documents such as the Charter of Medina, the, the legal texts. Um, that's the glue that binds all the different Islamic groups together, and that's where those ancient texts, that's where the problem lies. And when we talk about religious minorities, and you said just a few moments ago, religious minorities, especially Christians, uh, well, sometimes we talk about Jews and Christians and uh, the fact that those two particular groups are under, especially uh, under threat. Uh, how does that really work when you think of these sorts of ancient texts? 
Um, well, yes, um, I have been focusing on, on, on Christians, uh, the Christian experience under Islam, because um, that's been the direction of our conversation. However, um, some of the most um, negative um, comment within the ancient text is directed against Jews. Um, so um, I, I believe that the roots of modern Muslim anti-Semitism lie in those ancient texts. Um, so that's, that's... And this is where... When I hear Muslim scholars today talk about um, developing a new era of tolerance and so forth, but I don't hear them ask the question, what are we going to do about our ancient texts? Then something big is missing. So on broader political issues, when you hear of uh, Palestinians uh, who have a, you know, a, a, a death threat against uh, those who are in Israel, or you hear about uh, Iranian leaders uh, saying they want to just wipe the Jewish nation off the face of the earth, uh, the reason why they say such uh, fire-breathing uh, things is because of these ancient texts. That's that's the root, the root of it all, absolutely. There have been centuries of anti-Jewish comment built into the, the original texts repeated again and again down the centuries in documents, uh, in subsequent layers of documents. So it, the anti-Jewish attitudes that we see today from some uh, Muslim spokespeople can be traced right back in time, back 1,400 years ago. Okay, now the connection there to where Christians fit into that picture because uh, the Jews and the Christians are recognised as people of the book, uh, the book being the Bible, and I guess we're talking Old Testament and New Testament. So, uh, so while this hatred from these ancient texts uh, comes towards the Jewish people, uh, where do Christians fit into all of that? Um, the, the, the concept of the people of the book is built into Islamic law. Um, Islamic law is based on the earliest texts. It's based on the, the Hadith uh, collections. It's based on the Quran. Um, and Islamic law um, defines the, in great detail the, the role that Christians and Jews will have under Islamic rule, under Islamic authority. Now, according to the standards of 800 AD, in some ways it was advanced for the time, but according to today's state status uh, standards, um, the status of Christians and Jews under Islam is, is, is medieval. Um, Christians and Jews are basically treated as second-class citizens under Islamic law. So Muslims, some Muslims, some Muslims are increasingly recognizing the problem that um, to find the answers to address today's situation, they need to look forward, not look back, but many don't. Okay, important when we talk about the modern documents and the ancient documents, uh, because when we've been unpacking issues with the Marrakesh Declaration and then making that comparison back to the Charter of Medina, uh, but uh, where there can be a peaceful living side by side uh, in a community which is dominated by Islam, uh, then you've got this second-class citizen status. Uh, this is a terminology which some listeners will be pro will be familiar with, the idea of dimitude. Uh, so what can happen is uh, the two can live side by side, but as long as Islam has the uh, the dominance and this, this issue of dimitude. You mentioned a tax earlier. How does the tax on uh, second-class citizens work uh, when it comes to these ancient documents and how they're outworked in the present? Oh, well, that's part of the, the, that's part of the dimmi, the dimitude concept. Um, the Islamic law defines, um, defines what 
Christians and Jews must do in order to continue to to live and and follow their faith under under Islam. One is uh, they can practice their faith, but they mustn't do it in any way that's uh, too obvious. Uh, they shouldn't uh, have a high steeples in their churches, for example. So that's the first thing. They have to be fairly, um, fairly um, not, well, not too obvious in the way they practice their faith. A second one is um, they have to pay the special tax. It's called the jizya. Um, now, this tax was quite, it was established and widespread in, in, in former centuries. It's been resurrected by modern radical groups. So ISIS, for example, has been imposing this special tax on Christians living in the areas that it controls. Um, and ultimately, um, Christians and Jews living under Islam have to acknowledge the, the supremacy of Islam. In other words, they mustn't be too obtrusive. Uh, they should pay the special tax and they should defer in a whole range of ways to Muslims. Now, that is very different from today's approach to religious tolerance and religious pluralism that we find in United Nations documents. Well, 1-800-316-316 is our talkback line. You might have a question, you might have a comment about our conversation today. You're welcome to call us, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Michael in Campbelltown in New South Wales. Hello, Michael. Welcome along to 2020. Uh, Good afternoon. I'm just bringing up, I just want to ask a question. I'm not sure if it's been answered, but I mean... It says, in, like in the Bible, that you know when Messiah was to come, there's nothing to say that uh, Muhammad was the come. And then just another question: like, is Muhammad from the Abraham family that they say that the, the um, they they parted from when from Abraham? Is that true or not? Or I'm not really sure. I'm just don't understand myself. It's a question about context, Michael, and uh, let's uh, let's ask Dr. Peter Riddell uh, about that sort of context, uh, uh, being an Abrahamic type of religious faith and connections there to Christians and Jews. Uh, your thoughts, Peter? Um, uh, yes, there were two questions there. I missed the first one because the line broke up. The second one regarding um, Abraham. M- Muslims believe um, that uh, Muhammad descended from the line of Ishmael, um, the son of Abraham. So that is that that is the the the, the belief. Muslim see uh, Muslim scholars and believers they see um, their line as being Abrahamic through Ishmael. Uh, I missed the first question. I'm afraid. Uh, you're still there with us, Michael. Uh, that, your first question: What was the what was the essence of that one again? Uh, the first question was like, um, like you go back to say when Moses and like through that uh, Messiah was going to come, like Jesus was going to come, but there was never anything in the text to say that Muhammad was ever going to come. Like part, they say that Muhammad, I don't know, like whether we all believe in one God, but I mean we put Jesus first before. I mean, you know, we put God first before we put Muhammad, if you know what I mean. Like, there's nothing in the text to say that Muhammad was um, was coming through the ranks sort of thing, if you know what I mean. That's a good question. Uh, your thoughts, Peter? Um, Muslims claim that there used to be references to Muhammad in the um, Old Testament and the New Testament, and the um, Muslim, Muslim critics of Christianity say that um, Jews and Christians rubbed out those references to Muhammad. 
Now, from a perspective of a Christian or a Jewish reader of the Bible, we do not accept that. There is nowhere in the Bible that there is any evident reference to Muhammad. But Muslims claim there used to be references to Muhammad in the Bible. And Peter, just further on that, uh, manuscript evidence for the Old Testament and for the New Testament, very, very strong. And so if there was some sort of conspiracy that those things were rubbed out, uh, fairly easy to uh, for scholars to actually find that that's not the case, that they were never there. Well, indeed, and uh, that's a very good point, Neil. And um, that 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 claim by some Muslim um, critics has been answered again and again and again, uh, based on the manuscript evidence. As you say, there are thousands and thousands of uh, of uh, manuscripts of the uh, of the New Testament uh, and of the Old Testament from the early centuries of uh, of Christianity, um, which answer their charges. But the charge continues to be made. Well, one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen is our number. Thanks so much for, to Michael from Campbelltown. You can be part of our conversation. You might have a question. One eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Our special guest is Dr. Peter Riddell. We're talking through issues to do with what's known as the Marrakesh Declaration, or the modern form of people in the Islamic religion who are working on how they deal with issues of tolerance and pluralistic harmony where there is Muslim-majority domination. And we're reflecting on just what that means, the warm reception that so many parts of the community have brought to that document, and now looking a little bit deeper with some insights from Dr. Peter Riddell, who is an expert when it comes to Islam. He's vice-principal at the Melbourne School of Theology, also founding director of the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths. We'll be continuing our conversation in just a few moments. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. A conversation you can be part of, 1-800-316-316. We're taking calls. Dr. Peter Riddell is our guest. We're talking about the Marrakesh Declaration and, of course, persecution of Christian believers and coming to some conclusions here that the reason why Christians are persecuted and Jewish people are persecuted comes back to some ancient documents, one of those called the Charter of Medina. And what's happening with the Marrakesh Declaration, the modern declaration that tries to deal with issues of tolerance and pluralistic harmony in a Muslim-majority region. Well, Dr. Peter Riddell is our guest. Let's take some quick calls. Uh, You might have a question or a comment. We'll need to address those quickly, running out of time. Let's hear from Chris in Victoria. Hello, Chris. Welcome along to 2020. Yes, shalom, Neil. Shalom, Peter. Um, Yeah, in the Bible it says, you know, all liars will find themselves in the lake of fire. Whereas in uh, Islam, the concept of takia, you know, where it's, you're able to lie to further the cause of the religion. And Peter can correct me if I'm wrong, but it says even in the Quran that Allah claims to be the chief amongst deceivers. So I just want to make a comment. Was our prime minister being deceived yesterday when he met with Muslim leaders? Uh, well, uh, you, do you have a response for that, uh, Peter Riddell? Um, look, um, the, 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 the caller referred to the doctrine of Takiya, and that certainly does exist. Um, as far as the Prime Minister meeting Muslim leaders, I think while I have asked some very hard questions about the Marrakesh Declaration, nevertheless, I think it is important that we talk with, uh, with Muslims. Um, I think uh, for Muslims to get together to 
begin to acknowledge the problems within their texts is important. We just need to call them to account to do more uh, critical scrutiny. But no, I think the Prime Minister is, he needs to be talking to Muslim leaders, but to be asking some hard questions in the process. Dialogue always important. Thanks so much to Chris from Victoria for your call. Let's hear from Sister Donna on the Tweed Coast in New South Wales. Hello, Donna. Oh, good morning. Donna, what are your thoughts? Look, I'm just quite interested. I accidentally come across this station, um, you know, while I was trying to find the news. I'm just interested to know why you're actually not having a Muslim speaker on, somebody with, you know, knowledge to speak about this rather than having a non-Muslim. It, it, it seems a little bit uh, unusual that you would be getting answers from somebody who, in fact, is not a Muslim. Well, Donna, I guess it's because we're the national Christian broadcaster and drawing attention to issues like this from a Christian perspective would be our way of actually addressing the issue. And uh, there may be uh, other opportunities for Muslim scholars to talk about their own way, but we're talking today about some of the issues and talking about the warm reception of this particular document, but looking a little deeper and looking at some of the issues that Christians might be concerned about. After all, if we're talking about Christian persecution, uh, we ought to be talking about these things from a Christian perspective too. Uh, Donna, thanks so much for your input today here on 2020. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Weiwei in Queensland. Hello, Weiwei. Welcome along to 2020. Hi. What are your thoughts? I just thoughts? want to ask, um, <clears throat> is, are there really, um, what's the difference with uh, uh, moderate Islam and whatever Islam? And also, what's the connection of the Sharia law with the Marrakesh Agreement, and why are we allowing Sharia law to be allowed in Australia? Uh, some good questions there, and uh, probably a longer response required to tackle those efficiently. But Peter Riddell, your thoughts on Sharia law? Why would we be giving some light to Sharia law? And and uh, the other part of that question was about uh, moderate and extreme Islam, and is there a difference? Yes, um, they are very big questions. As far as moderate and extreme Islam is concerned, I mean, Muslims are incredibly diverse. And just one, by way of a response to the previous caller, getting a Muslim along to speak doesn't necessarily mean you get a a uniform opinion across 1.4 billion Muslims because Muslims would be greatly uh, in great disagreement about many of these issues and many of them would would, would agree with my perspective. Um, uh, As far as moderate and extreme Islam is concerned, um, moderate Muslims tend to, they look for modern answers to the big questions they're facing whereas extremist Muslims tend to look back to the sacred texts which is why I'm saying that moderates also need to ask the question what are they going to do about their sacred texts. Weiwei from Queensland, thanks so much for your input today here on 2020 and running short of time but uh, important to be able to talk here Peter Riddell about what the response of Christian believers ought to be. Uh, Having a little extra understanding now about what's happening in the Islamic world and uh, important to be able to talk about what a Christian response might be to documents like the Marrakesh Declaration. Uh, What are your thoughts on, uh, on proactive ways you can actually respond? Yes, well, I think firstly we should we should welcome the initiative of the Marrakesh Declaration um, for Muslim scholars to acknowledge that there has been persecution of Christians under Islam is is a very important step forward. So we should encourage them in that. 
Secondly, I think we should we should talk and form partnerships and um, have dialogue sessions with those Muslims who are willing to ask the hard questions. For example, I'm thinking of Professor Farid Essak from uh, the University of Johannesburg in, in, South, in South Africa. Um, he responded in a way similar to myself to the Marrakesh Declaration. Um, he said that... Um, there was a profound need for political and theological reforms to change how Muslims treat minorities. And he didn't believe that the Marrakesh Conference and Declaration would accomplish very much at all. So the, those sorts of the Muslims out there who are willing to ask these hard questions, I think we need to encourage them and indeed partner with them. Obviously, we need to, we need to pray about this. We need to pray for our Christian brothers and other religious minorities are living in situations of persecution. I think of the, the Yazidi women who are in situations of slavery under ISIS. Uh, we, and Christians who've suffered greatly under ISIS in different locations, we need to pray for them. We need to pray for Christians in uh, in Nigeria as well. So there are three things we can do. And fourthly, I think we should draw the attention of our political representatives to the issue of Christians suffering persecution and um, ensure that it gets into the halls of Parliament for discussion. Is it relevant to even suggest, Peter, that having seen that there was a gathering and the upshot of that was the Marrakesh Declaration, that that actually may be some answer to Christian prayers uh, who have been, people who have been praying for the persecuted believer, that there is attention being given uh, by Muslim scholars uh, to these issues of persecution? May well be, indeed, indeed. I think it is the Marrakesh Declaration represents a step in the right direction. Further steps have got to be taken and they involve, they include looking at the ancient texts um, where I believe the problem lies. But, but I'm encouraged by the Marrakesh Declaration. I think it is in one way it's an answer to prayer and more prayer is needed. Peter, you mentioned a site or two where people could see your response. Just quickly remind us where people can go online and uh, just get a refresher on some of the things we've been talking about this hour, uh, the sort of response that you made to the Marrakesh Declaration. Yes. Um, but there is a website uh, out of the United Kingdom called Lapido Media. That's Lapido, L-A-P-I-D-O Media. Um, it is a um, it is a website that features commenting on all sorts of issues relating to religious literacy in journalism. I wrote an extended response on that, and it was published, so viewers, uh, listeners, can find it there. Well, great getting your insights again today. Peter Riddell is Vice Principal at the Melbourne School of Theology, founding director of the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths. Tremendous insights and uh, just appreciate you taking time to talk to us on 2020. Pleasure, Neil. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.